Welcome to the ACCSports.com Insiders. I am Jason Kong here with Brian Geisinger and Josh Graham. Thank you so much for joining us as we're going to take an in-depth look at the ACC. And don't forget, you can also do that throughout the week at ACCSports.com. Well, we've got a a jam-packed show here today, and we're going to start out talking about UNC at Virginia Tech today. Um, I I was going to say a tale of two different stories, but maybe not quite. Virginia Tech, of course, on a six-game win streak. UNC off a frustrating loss to Pitt this week. Brian, what are you going to be watching? I think with UNC, it's going to be come down to the defense. The Hokies have won uh, six straight, and the offense— which was a little sluggish earlier in the season, has really heated up. And that's sort of like driven the Hokies the last couple of weeks as they've been just red hot. Um, this is now a top 20 offense in the country. UNC's not too far behind. UNC's the top 25 offense in terms of efficiency nationally. But for UNC, for me, so much this season, we've discussed it on the show, comes down to what is the, what's the defense able to do? Can they contain... Because offensively, UNC can score points, and and they can win games going that route. But how do they defend Virginia Tech? Now, for UNC, I think one of the things they have in their favor is, A, they already showed that they can defend the Hokies pretty well, you know, not too long ago, about a month ago, um, when these these teams met in late January. UNC won that game, I believe, by 10 points. Virginia Tech doesn't have sort of like a dynamic downhill pick-and-roll creator that's really been like that's really give that that player type has really given UNC issues this season. Alondis Williams, Ty Ty Washington, Kennedy Chandler, Blake Wesley at Notre Dame. But the Hokies are explosive offensively. They have good guys in the post with Justin Mutz and Keve Luma that can step out and shoot. They can really pass. Hunter Couture is one of the best movement shooters in the country. UNC is fighting for its postseason life right now. And that effort is going to start, or what's left of it is going to start with how well they're able to defend Virginia Tech Saturday night. Yeah, and Josh, I want to bring you in here. You were in Chapel Hill for UNC's loss to Pitt. Give us your perspective on that and get into a little bit on what's at stake today for the Tar Heels. I think a lot of people are saying that the loss to Pittsburgh is something you could see coming considering how North Carolina has been underwhelming for a lot of the season. They've lost games big when they've lost them. But I I push against that. I think Wednesday was an aberration in this sense. Hubert Davis has beaten all the teams that he's supposed to beat except for Wednesday. And even good coaches lose games that they're supposed to win. Ask Mike Bray, who nearly lost to BC earlier in the week and lost to BC by double digits earlier in the year. These things happen. It wasn't random. Without Justin McCoy in the lineup the other night, I looked to the person to my left as the game was tipping off and wondered, when Armando Baycott has to come out of this game, what exactly is North Carolina going to do? And what Hubert did was run zone because you have Brady Manick playing at the five, and he's a stretch for it best. That is a problem for North Carolina. So today, you can't get bullied the way that North Carolina got bullied against John Hewley and Pittsburgh. And Hewley might be an all-ACC guy. BG was talking about the two leading scorers that Virginia Tech has who just so happened to be in the post, Justin Mutz and Keve Aluma. That's where the key is. It's Armando Baycott and Brady Manick needing to come up big. 
against Tech when North Carolina beat Tech the first time a few weeks ago. Don't forget, who was the one that stepped up in the final four minutes? It was Brady Manick that helped carry that ugly win home. And regardless of how it looks today for Carolina, ugly or pretty, they need to get a W, as BG noted, for their NCAA tournament case. Yeah, and you, Josh brings up the, the UNC going zone. It was two possessions of zone defense. They got a stop on the first one. R.J. Davis gets a steal on a bad pass from Femme Odokale to the nail. On the very next possession, though, the, the ball gets swung to the wing. Caleb Love and Dontre Styles, who have not played, entering that game, had played just 34 minutes together all season. And UNC, for the entirety of the season, has played 11 possessions of zone defense. So this is one of those 11. So not a lot of reps together, right? And certainly not a lot of reps playing zone defense together. Those guys converge on the wing. Ithiel Horton runs the baseline, pops out wide open in the corner, catch and shoot three. Bang. No more zone for the rest of the season. I've said this. I've written about this at accsports.com a lot. I thought UNC seemed like a team that should try more zone this season defensively just because of their issues guarding the pick and roll. Now when they do mix it in occasionally, it doesn't work. And it's sort of hard to figure, well, is it because the personnel just defensively isn't that good? Is it because it's hard to play zone, which it is? Or is it simply because like they just haven't really tried it? And when they throw it, then when they try it now, it's just, you know, you're throwing something, something at the wall and hoping that it sticks and uh, inevitably, um, it, it's not right now. Like the zone has just not worked out. They tried it against Duke. Ben Carroll lit them up in the middle of the zone. They tried it against Wake for two possessions. Jake Laravia lit them up. It just has not worked for them so far this season. Their best defense against Pittsburgh did come though with Brady Manick at center, and it was that second half when Baycott was sitting down and they started trapping everything right. And all of a sudden, you've got Leaky Black flying around. Caleb Love starts getting downhill offensively. That was the best stretch of the— Maybe Pittsburgh got a little tight. You know, they're trying to salt the game away. But the best stretch for UNC was in the second half with Manic at the five, Baycott sitting down, and UNC trapping ball screens. Because it just—I think for them, for UNC, a team that is not good defensively and doesn't force a lot of turnovers, it was good for them to, even if it was scripted, to just force some activity. Get guys flying around a little bit. Force the defense to have to make a play. Maybe you leave yourself exposed a little bit, but hey, maybe on the next possession, R.J. Davis gets a steal, and which he did. He turned it into a layup. So I, I, I kind of like that from UNC, and maybe we'll see a little bit more of that. Um, you know, Virginia Tech is a team that struggled against length this season. They have a smaller point guard in Storm Murphy, and he's really their one pure ball handler. They have pressure release guys like Justin Mutz, but I'll be curious to see if maybe that's something UNC tries a little bit more. Um, I know they were in desperation mode late in that game, but that worked. And I liked seeing their defense just get a little shot in the arm of we're desperate and now we're trapping and some good stuff came out of it. So I'll be fascinated to see if that we get any more of that this season or if that really was just sort of a late game move um, to, to try to like, you know, forced to come back on Pittsburgh. Kong, Kong, I don't know if you're with me on this. I'd be interested to know what you think. There are probably some folks listening to our voice right now on ACCSports.com insiders and thinking, why the heck are you guys talking so in-depth about a team whose season is already over? They lost the pit the other night, and that's it in the minds of some Carolina fans. My view on it is, and I'd want to know what yours is, is that the NCAA is kind of like, I think I heard my friend Gilio make this point, Joe Gilio in Raleigh, 
that it's a lot like the SAT. They care about, you know, what the, the highs are, not necessarily the lows. What you get right, not what you get wrong. The wins are more valued than the bad losses are. And North Carolina still has some Q1 opportunities available. I think they need to get two Q1 wins. That's what they need to do. And today is one of those. If you get it, fantastic. If you don't, you probably got to win at Duke. So you might want to get this one today. And then when you go to Brooklyn, as of right now, as crazy as it sounds, as of today, North Carolina would have a double bye in the, uh, into the ACC tournament. Now, things are diff- difficult going down the stretch. So let's just say, for argument's sake, North Carolina's playing on Wednesday rather than Thursday. If they win Wednesday, that game Thursday, the first game that they play there, odds are is going to be a Q1 game since it's on a neutral floor. So I don't think they need to win the ACC tournament. I, I don't think they need to win out in order to get in. I think there are two, uh, there are plenty of Q1 opportunities available, or at least two or three, that North Carolina can get and still get into the tournament. You agree with that? I do. I think the panic button has been hit multiple times this season, and it, you alluded to this, but it's just the way that they've lost the games that they have in the fashion that they have. It, it's it's panic-inducing because they've just been blown out in the losses that they've had, or well, majority of them. And the question is, is if that has a lasting impact on the committee. But I, I do think you're right, Josh. I, I don't think it's time to hit the panic button yet. I think there's plenty of opportunity. You know, this team has shown the flashes of that it can be really good when they're dialed in. I mean, they they almost came back against Pitt. Um, they locked in defensively. It's just a matter of bringing that effort for an entire game. And, uh, you know, Brian, you've kind of shown the blueprint of how that needs to look. And I don't think it's time to burn all the jerseys and things like that. And, uh, and Fire the coach, Kong! Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's not It's not time to start talking about the spring game just yet. So that that's my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And look, like, th- this was... they. Pittsburgh had a good offensive game, right? And sometimes basketball, it's a random, chaotic sport. There were some shots that Pitt made in that game where it's just like, you just throw your hands up and say, it's just a nice play that Ithia Horton made, right? Like R.J. Davis and, and Armando Baycott, they defended that pick and roll well. He just rose up and hit a shot from 24 feet away. Like, that's going to happen. four-point play by Hughley. It's just, yeah. yeah, just random chaos, you know, coming in. And, and you don't want to just boil it down to just that because that, that's overly reductive. But UNC, they are one of the worst defenses nationally at forcing turnovers, right? 14.2% of opponent possessions, only that, have resulted in a turnover this season. Against Pittsburgh, UNC's defense and Pitt's offense, they this is their own issue. They turn the ball over a lot, so that's important to note. But UNC's defense forced the turnover on 26% of their defensive possessions in that game. That's a season high. Um, now, again, it was not an overall great defensive game in part because John Hewley's good. He makes plays happen. They got red hot. from They were 10 of 17 on threes. Some of that is on UNC. I would love to see more uh, fight at the point of attack from Caleb Love. Like, I've been kind of begging for it for two years now and really haven't seen it yet. But I did like their aggression late in that game, trapping the basketball. And um, and I think still Dontre Styles getting some of those minutes in that game, like those reps are important too. And they're not just for a throwaway here. So it starts now though. Like they've, they've this is basically a must, this isn't quite a must win, but it's like if they lose this game, it gets, it, it gets really, really hard. So one game at a time, but uh, the Virginia Tech one, it starts here. And this, we know this is a winnable game. 
uh, for, for UNC, and this could potentially be their first quad one win of the season, which would look really nice on the resume. You're listening to ACCSports.com Insiders. Jason Kong here with Brian Geisinger and Josh Graham. Uh, let's turn our focus now to Florida State heading to Cameron Indoor to take on Duke tonight. And, you know, FSU's probably trending in the opposite direction of Virginia Tech. They had lost six straight before uh, pulling off a, a win this week. But they're a team that's uh, that's been hurt by injuries, although no one else in the ACC is really going to be shedding a tear for any team talking about injuries right now. But uh, Coach K should be back on the sideline. Josh, what are you looking at tonight? I'm looking for Duke to win big because it hasn't happened in a while, strangely, at home. Like, the last three home games, get this, are a two-point win against Wake Forest on Tuesday night, a game BG and I were at, a loss pretty much at the buzzer to Virginia, and a two-point win against Clemson. I'll happily be wrong if we're, we're graced with a great basketball game like we've had the last three times Duke's been at home. But I just got a feeling with FSU having lost six of their last seven and Duke letting that, li- that lead slip away late, I, I think Death Star Duke might be making an appearance tonight. Uh, we saw what happened when FSU went to Chapel Hill last Saturday. We know what Duke is capable of doing. It's been a while since we've seen Duke jump on somebody. I think with Coach K in his second-to-last home game, healthy and on the bench, I think that's what we see at 6 o'clock tonight. Yeah, and I guess we just haven't seen it from start to finish, right? Because they were up 20 points against Wake Forest before you know Wake got desperate and sort of roared back down the stretch and made that an incredibly compelling and fun finish. Um, you know They've had some blowout wins at home, Syracuse and, and right before that. Uh, NC State about a month ago in the middle of of January and yeah like look I think all of us on this show have the utmost for Leonard Hamilton and Stan Jones and the rest of that coaching staff it's one of the best staffs and one of the best programs in college basketball with FSU but they're just missing like this this was an imperfect roster to start the season and the injuries have really really wiped them away but you do have to remember FSU still has NBA talent on this roster with Matthew Cleveland and John Butler in Jalen Marley, they're well coached. So they've got, and, they've, and this is a prideful program with a lot of culture. But yeah, running up against a healthy Duke team, you, you may, you know, Trevor Keels got injured in the game in Tallahassee. Um, you know, th- he's back. He's back in the starting lineup. He started the game against Wake Forest. Um, yeah, this could be a statement game for Duke um, as they're really trying to finish strong. This is the penultimate home game for Mike Shashevsky too. Like, like this yeah. is it. Like, this is the second to last one. So, um, you know, why not let it all hang out and 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 really try to you know have a good showing um, in front of a big audience as Coach K is looking to to close things out here for his career. And you hit on it with help. This isn't the same FSU team that beat Duke with no. Anthony Polite, no Malik Osborne. I don't know what Caleb Mills' status is, but he didn't play earlier in the week. Fletcher and Butler, they've been banged up. And just that last game that FSU won about a month ago, actually one month to the day ago, is kind of, I think, a microcosm of the margin of error necessary for Duke to lose in the ACC. I think FSU had 19 offensive boards in that game, 15 to 17 turnovers. And still, and they were at home, and still Duke 
needed or they needed a last second shot high off the glass on a floater at the buzzer in order just to force overtime in that game. Now this game's at Cameron and you don't have Polite or Osborne and Coach K is back on the bench. I, I, I just don't see how FSU holds up. Duke's three ACC losses coming by a combined four points is pretty crazy. And if you want to uh, track back, Duke has four losses this season, including the Ohio State game in, in late November. I think that was by all of that was has been by a total of nine points, I believe. Led in the final minute of all four of them. Yeah. We want to get into a discussion now on Coach of the Year. I'm interested to get your guys' feedback on Here we go. on who you guys think should be the Coach of the Year. I mean, obviously we've got uh, a few more weeks to go here in the season, but... Brian, you know, if it, who's on your short list right now for Coach of the Year? Chris Mack. I mean, no. Uh, <laughs> the short list is, uh, I think there's some really worthy candidates. Um, I would say Steve Forbes at Wake Forest. I would probably give him a slight edge. But what Mike Bray and Notre Dame have done, 12-3 and three in the ACC, getting that, after Prentice Hub, his, star, his starting point guard got off to a bad start, being able to weave Blake Wesley, the most talented player on that roster, but a freshman, to be able to bring him in to an experienced team and to have him become the primary guy and just keep it humming speaks to Mike Bray. He's a good coach. They've reorchestrated their offense a little bit this season and have adapted it very nicely to the personnel. And he was missing one of his best players, Nate Lazuski, Nate Lazuski for a couple of games, and they just kept on moving. Um, so I would say Notre Dame ha- and, and, and Mike Bray has an excellent case for this as well. Certainly Jim Laranega at Miami as well. I think those are the main guys. But, you know, Josh, do you think we, there should be more of a, of a groundswell for Coach K? I mean, this is okay. This is hands down yeah, the best team in the league, right? Like, let's, it's not even let's, close. Let's, let's have an honest conversation now that we need to have about ACC Coach of the Year. ACC Coach of the Year is not who's the best coach in the ACC this season. It's who has overachieved the most based on what guys like us thought you were going to be back in October. This is what I mean. Coach K might be the greatest college basketball coach ever. He certainly is the all-time wins leader. We know this. The last time Coach K won ACC Coach of the Year, so not National Coach of the Year across the country, just when has Coach K in a single year been the best coach in this conference? 2000. 22 years ago. Do you know who's won this award twice since then? The face shield. Gary Gary Williams. (laughs) Gary Williams has won this award twice in that time. Seth Greenberg has won this award twice since the last time Mike Krzyzewski's won it. So yes, Steve Forbes is a great story and they've had an unbelievable year. And Jim Laranaga has also won this award twice in the last 10 years. He'd be a deserving candidate too. Give the award to Mike Krzyzewski because here's the thing. There's going to be another Steve Forbes-like story next year. Another Jim Laranaga-like story. Josh Hasner's won this award at Georgia Tech. Are you kidding me? Give the award to Coach K. It's his last year. He hasn't won it in 22 years. We all know that at least one of those years that Coach K's had maybe been the best basketball coach in his own conference. Give the man the award 
He's deserved it. It, it is funny that there isn't this like <laughs> it is funny that we judge this award based off of this. It's like, yeah, what do preseason voters at Media Day with their with their button-up shirts covered in, you know, whatever was served for lunch that day at the hotel in Charlotte. And, like, whatever they thought that day, whichever team exceeds those expectations from October, you know, that's the coach that that gets the award. And almost like nothing else is even taken into, to, to, into, into the case. Like, I made the – when Tony Bennett in Virginia uh, won the national title in 2019, that season, you know, a month before that when the regular season ended – I wrote a post at accsports.com about why I thought Tony Bennett should have been ACC Coach of the Year. There were a lot of Virginia Tech fans that were mad at me. They wanted Buzz Williams, uh, who would, uh, weeks later, uh, abandon them for Texas A&M. But like, the case I was making for Tony Bennett involved not only were they really, really good, which should be like the baseline criteria for this. Like, Is your team good? Not if it like exceeded expectations or whatever. But if you look at... Uh, in-game adjustments, if you look at player development, like none of that stuff gets baked into this cake like it should. Um, it's why I, I, one of the reasons why I, I will often advocate for Tony Bennett, for Mike Young, for these types of things, because I think they just do a really, really good job um, on a game-to-game basis, not even just like a, if you're looking at the season in, in total. But yeah, it is funny that we don't do the most simple thing, which is like, which team is best? Vote for their coach. I feel like we do that in football. But that doesn't happen in basketball for some reason. And uh, especially when a team like Duke is so obviously the best team in the league. Like the gap between one and two is much bigger than the gap between two and three. So, um, yeah, it, it seems like there's a great case for Coach K. But it's nuts. He's only won it five times in 42 seasons and not once since 2000. Like that's kind of insane. Herb Syndex won this award in the last before before Coach K won it. You guys are making too much sense and lo- using too much logic. I'm I'm an agent of chaos. I want I want to see the most fun thing. I think we should take the three teams. We should take Notre Dame. We should take Wake Forest. We should take Duke. We should we should switch up the coaches. Yes, and then you know <laughs> do like a that. round robin, see yeah. what happens, and then you know let's have a tournament for Coach of the Year. I like that's, that. That's my idea. A, a trading. Are whistles. you saying that Mike Bray should be the successor? at Duke is that what you're talking uh, no, about I'm here? just saying give him the tools give him the tools available at Duke for you know I don't know two or three games and let's see what he can do let's see is if that in the Ian O'Connor book I missed that part. no no yeah. no no that's uh... but there's a whole chapter on, on Mike Bray walking shirtless around <laughs> around Duke's campus in, in the O'Connor <laughs> well, book well let's just... be honest I think Steve Forbes made history at Cameron the other night I don't think ever a coach has ever walked in with a hoodie on. Yeah, that that was a. Steve Forbes is wearing an outfit at that game that if I came downstairs for like Thanksgiving dinner at my house, my mom back home would be like, <laughs> "No, put a fleece on at least." I mean, I respect it. The hoodie is literally my favorite like article of clothing, but uh, that did make me laugh. Well, when, he said he did it out of respect for Coach K, which is great, just perfect. When we get to the attire of Steve Forbes, that means it's time to end the show. So we are <laughs> we are out of time for today. Thank you so I'm much. I'm wearing a Steve Forbes shirt. You are. NASCAR Steve Forbes shirt. That also means it's time to go as well. <laughs> On behalf of Josh Graham and Brian Geisinger, I'm Jason Kong. Thanks so much for listening. This has been ACCSports.com Insiders. Enjoy the action today.